Joe, I know that you've been in a 15th year relationship, a very healthy relationship. And I'd really love for you to share a little bit about what you think some of the biggest social and emotional differences are between you and your partner. Because I know that's an area where a lot of couples seem to have challenges. Sure, sure. And, you know, to be clear, every relationship I was in prior, it was just fighting all the time. Like Arguments were just constant. Misunderstandings were rampant, you know. And a lot of it was, you know, we were both having old stuff kind of activated. And we were, so we were bringing that into the current relationship even if it wasn't really relevant Mm -hmm. and you know I don't know how it happened but I you know we had our breakthrough moment about five years ago we were actually in the country of Colombia and you know my um my partner is was uh something of a celebrity at the conference we were at and, you know, and was having trouble seeing how I was being treated so differently mm-hmm. while we were there. And, you know, and, I, you know, I pointed it out and I explained it and I got a good amount of pushback. And I said, you know, maybe just pay attention to how people treat me differently than how they treat you and look at how I'm behaving differently than you and what people are taking from that. Mm. You know, and I think that was just such a revelatory breakthrough on like what the social discrimination looked like, you know, because, you know, we were with um, we were at a conference from people all over the world. And, you know, to see that in force, I think it it really was impacting. And so, you know, and it's. I guess it's a little different, you know, and I feel like to be autistic is to do just constant uh, (laughs) emotional labor all the time, Mm, mm, you know, and mm -hmm. which is okay. You know, it's not, that's, I feel like that's a good thing because it makes you so much more adept at understanding other people's emotional lives. And it makes you just much better at providing feedback and at hearing where someone is coming from And maybe, you know, because I feel like it's a real advantage that we have to learn every last thing through failure. There's just a lot more of a cognitive part to recognizing what the dynamics are in any situation. Joe, what you just said is gold. And maybe even platinum, you know, (laughs) seriously, I say this, you know, sometimes I get these aha moments on the podcast and I just have to repeat them. You said that um, autistics learn everything through failure. And, you know, as a social worker myself and as a mother, I just can't even imagine. And as a person, I can't even imagine that my my heart just like broke for a second and but I understand what you're saying and I think it 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 may color um some folks view of the world so I want to ask you a few questions before we get Faith's input on this because that is your reality or that's many autistic people's reality what happens when you get into a love relationship 
with somebody who is constantly criticizing you because they want you to be more like them. I mean, I would leave that relationship. Probably. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but... Okay. So, so, and, and you know what? There are a lot of folks that are afraid to leave the relationship because they love the person so much and they keep hoping that things will change. So let's talk about this for a second, because what you're saying is the healthy decision probably for a lot of people, but they're not ready to do that. But I know there are folks that will mask, right? Mm -hmm. At the beginning of the relationship, in the relationship, I think my ex may have even masked for 30 years. I don't know. Um, because maybe he didn't feel safe. He didn't feel comfortable emotionally because he didn't want to fail. Right. So I think what you're saying is so critical. So how can we help our listeners here, both the autistic and the non-autistic understand that safety in a relationship is, and I'm not talking about physical safety. I'm talking about emotional safety is so critical and that if your partner does something that doesn't feel good to you or doesn't resonate in the way you want it to, instead of being hurtful or blaming or pointing a finger, what is a better way for our listeners to respond? I mean, so Faith has an entire book about this called Unfuck Your Boundaries. But the simple, this, and which is uh, in my... Which I love, Faith. I shared that with several of my friends. I read it from cover to cover, and I highly recommend it to anybody listening. Go ahead. And I mean, and if I may, it's one of her best books, if not her best book. And, you know, and it's, and I feel like every single question I get from young people goes right back to that book where, you know, it's like, you know, you can re, you can name the behavior and say this is what's happening right now. This is not an acceptable way to treat me. This is how I feel when you treat me that way. This is how I would like to be treated instead. And, you know, the big reveal will happen when you draw that line in the sand the first time. Because especially if you've put up with it for years, minutes, hours, days, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's going to be a revelation for both of you. And let's hope it's a good revelation. <laughs> Yeah. Joe, I think that's so good. And I think it goes for both partners. So Faith, since you are the queen of unfuck your boundaries, (laughs) I, Joe, Joe, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for all of that. It was just phenomenal. What do you have to share Faith? Because this is a big issue, not just for the autistic partner, but for the non-autistic partner. Yeah. um, And I think that you know, like Joe said, maybe this is something we've been letting slide for some time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I say like, this is something that we, that needs to be part of the communication. You know, it's on me that I didn't tell you that this was a problem. Mm-hmm. So first of all, let me own that. You're looking at me like I'm nuts because I told you that I liked sushi for 20 years and actually I don't. <laughs> um, so that wasn't cool. Right. I apologize. Um, so we need to own whatever our part in, in that, that internal boundary violation that was, was going on there. Um, the one thing that I also tell clients is when these things are happening and these, these boundaries are continuing to be violated, I said, you need to get really granular on what done looks like. Mm, Speak to that more. 
So, and you've done this too, where people are like, oh, and this is so bad. And they are, they're taking way, they're taking way more than they should. And they have gone way further with this than they should. And they're just in this muck. And like Joe said, they need to be out of this relationship, but it's got, it's been so bad for so long that they're not even aware anymore. Right. So right. when this is, when this kind of stuff is going on, I said, you need to know, you need to, you need to start paying attention in a very concrete as pavement way of what done looks like. You may be past it. You may be close to it. You may decide that, you know what? I love this person so much that I don't care if they shoot up, you know, they're doing cold shots in my living room. I'm going to take it. Yeah. And that's okay. It's your relationship, not mine. Right. You need to think about that and make a decision about that. So you know what the boundary is. And one more thing I want to tack on that is, you know, I mean, when I was in, when I was married, I had a real, you know, it was the constant thing where it's like, I would draw a boundary and I would get the rebuttal of like, you've never had a problem with this before. And, and it's more like, I've just not had the courage to stand up for myself before, you know, and that mm-hmm. doesn't make it less valid, you know? And, and the other thing that I run into all the time is that, because have such a difficult time reading us or us being autistic people, they can't interpret our emotional expression in a way that is comfortable or familiar to them. So what they do is then they come back and say, oh, well, you know, you weren't feeling this way because I couldn't tell or I had no idea that you were feeling this way and that's your fault as well. You know, and so you have to sort of normalize the framing of like this is how i feel and this is how what you're doing is impacting me yeah that's so again more nuggets of gold from both of you because i think that we all do a little bit of transference you know if i were to see my ex with this look on his face i call it like the deer in headlights look (laughs) i you know i would think that he wasn't listening i would think that he wasn't respecting me i was thinking that he didn't value what i was saying or you know he wasn't in the moment with me when the fact of the matter is i had probably emotionally overloaded him he was flooded (laughs) and he had lost me after the first sentence but i didn't know that and i'm not sure he knew it so i think that there's There's a lot that goes on in any relationship, but we're talking about neurodiverse relationships. So when, when we're assuming, we know what happens when we Mm -hmm. assume, right? Um, We don't have to tell our audiences that or our listeners that, but I think there are so many differences with neurodiverse couples that we do make a lot of assumptions and we do misunderstand and we both end up hurting each other and nobody wants to have to continuously learn through failure like you said joe and nobody wants to really be pushing the other person's boundaries continuously or having their boundaries crossed as you talked about faith but i think there are these differences that couples are trying to work through and i think another thing that is a big difference is how couples kind of process things and think about you know making decisions so um i don't know which one of you wants to start but i'd love to hear what you've seen are some of the differences in the way 
autistics versus non-autistics think and process and how that can create challenges and what are some of the ways that they can learn how to understand each other better. I mean, to me, the biggest difference is that every, I mean, I, I joke in the autism relationships handbook that it's like every message is like a, a very carefully coded lie that, you know, your partner is trying to tell you without actually telling you. <laughs> and so, you know, because it's like, even, you know, I mean, and, and the, the biggest tell for me is like, for years of my life, when people like when I would sit at a restaurant and someone would say, how are you today? And I would tell them how I was doing that today, that day. And they would look on in utter horror at me <laughs> because that's a completely dishonest question. Like right. nobody actually wants to know that, you know? Right. And, and, you know, and, and it's like our entire culture is built on that level of dishonesty, but nobody would frame it that way. But you just did. And I love that, Joe. I wish we could all be more honest with each other. And why do we ask, how are you? Because right. it's really just like saying hi. Why don't we just say hi <laughs> instead right. of how are you today, right? Exactly. So and But that's the thing. It's like, and in relationships, that's like, there's just 10 times as much depth and there's a lot more history mm -hmm. and it's way more complicated. And, you know, in my experience, just about every person that I work with, you know, the real problems are that their partner can't just cannot get past the point of directly addressing the things that they need or want to talk about. Yeah. And I, yeah. And, and I love, um, there's a quote that goes around, you know, Instagram, Facebook, you know, just say what you mean and mean what you say. And I love that. And I think if more neurodiverse couples could do that and i'm you know i'm raising my hand you guys can't see me but i'm raising my hand oh i did not say what i meant do you want to go to italian tonight when i really wanted to go from middle eastern no say what i want i want to go from middle eastern but i know you know my partner loves italian if you want something be clear with your partner i think that's so so critical and joe i love i love how um succinct and clear you are in the book and you just say it like it is and i laughed so many times with your honesty i really did i just think it's so helpful for the non-autistic folks to hear it the way you talk about it i think you guys are a great team and i'm sure you've heard that before great team in your in your writing um and you know just in your communication i think it's awesome so what about you, Faith? Is there anything you want to share as, as far as thinking and processing differences that you've seen or things you've helped people with? I think one thing that just to add on to what Joe said that might be helpful for our listeners who are neurodiverse or um, borrow norms, as, as Joe says, is the four levels of communication that's in mm. the Unfuck Your Boundaries book, I think is really helpful for everybody. Um, prob probably more us non-neurodiverse people than anything is that we, there's, there's four levels to every communication and we all have our stuck point. 
and I teach all my couples this, and this can be really helpful for those of us that are in a relationship with somebody that is neurodiverse is to see where we're getting stuck. Mm -hmm. So all of my couples that are not neurodiverse, I'm always helping them try to figure out where they're getting stuck. And I can use the example of where I get stuck and where my husband gets stuck and where we've had to work on our stuff. Okay. Um, So the first level is what we mean to say. The second is what actually comes out of our mouth. Mm-hmm. Third is what the person hears, like which parts of, of what's said is heard. And then the fourth is what they think we mean. Because mm-hmm. what Joe was talking about there was, you know, that interpretation part. And so I have a hard time. I don't always hear all the bits and pieces because I'm thinking of other things. I'm writing in my head. I'm thinking about the 10 texts I need to answer on my phone, (laughs) all those other things. And my husband, and I just asked him a question and then didn't listen to the freaking answer. Um, (laughs) We all do that. Right. Um, But that, that's, that's where I get the most stuck and have to really pay attention. And if he told me, he told, if he said, I told you that, yeah, you didn't. I need to not do that. I have to go, yeah, you probably did. I'm really sorry. <laughs> uh, right. I had to walk back in this morning and said, you just told me what kind of bagel you wanted. And I didn't pay attention to the answer. And he just looks at me like, oh, my God. <laughs> you know? um, and his is the interpretation. Of, and so I'm not neurodiverse, but I am indigenous. So we say what we mean, too. Um, mm. Yeah. Mm, that's why we get along. Right? Um, yeah, there you go. Um, so, you know, he's very used to, I'm going to say one thing, but you better figure out what I mean. And he said, it took me a year to get used to the fact that you just say what you mean. And I'm like, oh, honey, it took you too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love that and, you know, he'd get the panic look in his eyes when, when I'd say, do you want sushi for dinner? And you'd see like him tracking. And I'm like, if I don't want sushi, I'm not going to freaking eat it. Like it's fine. And, if, and if, if I do say I want sushi and I don't, that's on me because I'm grown. Like Joe said, yeah. we're pushing 50. Like, you know, right. well, you don't know that I, Joe I'm is- older than you guys. I'm pushing 60. So I'm with you. I'm with you. you got to speak. You speak your truth. Yes. And Joe didn't tell you we're actually twins. We share a birthday. Um, <laughs> oh, really? Yes. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. We didn't awesome. find that out for a few years, but yes. Yes. Okay. Um, awesome. So that, you know, that, so figuring out you know, where that, and some people have this idea of what they want to say and what comes out of their mouth. Cause I see it, you've seen it too. Like in couples mm-hmm. counseling where what, what comes out of their mouth and you're like, I know you, you're like the sweetest person in the world. And what came out of your mouth was me. Mm-hmm. Like, you mm-hmm. know, we all have this place where we get stuck. And sometimes we see that like with people that are like ADHD is another form of neurodiversity. What comes out of their mouth? You're like, whoa, I didn't get any of that right now, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and so figuring out if there's if there's any disconnect anywhere in those four levels of communication can be really helpful as well. Um, and like Joe said, for those of us who are not neurodiverse, that complicated reinterpretation tends to be a big thing. And if you're somebody who has a, is always trying to pay attention to 10 different things, slowing down and really listening to your partner, that's me. Like that number three is a big thing. Um, and then my husband wanted the plain bagel, not the everything bagel. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Don't yeah. offer to get me a bagel and then not pay attention to the answer. <laughs> yeah. So I think, I think what you said, another, you know, negative goal, the slowing down to really be able to listen 
is so critical again in any relationship but i think even more so in a neurodiverse relationship and the one thing i found i found out this too late it was after the divorce but one thing at a time and not only one thing at a time but oftentimes when i put it in writing whether it's an email or a text it is better received um and i don't know you, I, I just heard you say, yeah, Faith, what about, what about both of you? What do you find is most helpful in your communication with each other since you're a mixed neurotype? In Faith and I? Yeah. And um, you can talk about your relationship too, Joe. Uh, I mean, Faith and I normally communicate in a series of complicated jokes where we one-up each other. So I don't know <laughs> what that really, I mean, that's probably, there's probably some very deep psychology there, but <laughs> Like, but but I guess that speaks more to the fact of like we know each other well enough to know to be able to do that, right? Right. And know what resonates or not. And but we have similar schedules, even though we're in different states. But we're also doing, um, you know, we're in our daily lives, so we text more than anything else. And our partners get bored with us, so they leave the group chat. So it's pretty mm. much just us. They're not gotcha. <laughs> You know, I love, I love when there's this level of synergy between people that work together and our friends. I love it. It's awesome. So we're, we're almost, you know, at the end, I love how quickly time flies when we're having fun. And I do want to ask you just um, a few more things before we, before we say goodbye. I know there's so many things we can talk about, but I want to take advantage of your expertise, Faith, as a sexologist because I know a lot of folks who come to the free support group I run are dealing with a lack of physical intimacy in their relationship. And Joe, I'd love for you to answer this too. Um, What is it that the partners can do with each other to make sure that physical intimacy, if they both want it, is and a regular important part of their relationship, especially when there are sensory or um, other differences. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts that you all can share? Because I know that's a challenge for a lot of folks. Um, I would say, well, first of all, Joe, Joe, because he sell he publishes and sells my books, is going to say you should buy her book and fuck your intimacy. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I would say, first of all, I would want to work around what what is the sensory overload and work around that. If there's something about being dirty, you have sex in the shower. I mean, you know, so I would figure out what the sensory overload is and figure out how to work around that. Um, you know, if lights are an issue, you work with the lights. If there's, you know, there, there's there's whatever needs to be done to work with that is is doable because everybody's very different in that domain. Um, and then I think we have this idea of where it's supposed to be this very intuitive and you're supposed to just run across this field of flowers in slow motion to each other. We don't have <laughs> lives that um, are conducive to that. And relationships aren't like that after that first 12 to 18 months of oxytocin anyway. Um, so that's why, you know, that, that book and workbook is full of exercises like the sunset focus and things like that, that really help us build the intimacy. And, and I've had people like, well, but I don't, I want it to be, I'm like, well, but it's not because that's not what modern life is like. And so we have to work on flirting with each other and building date nights and rebuilding intimacy through touch and and those kinds of things and taking into account trauma history and rebuilding neuropathways and 
feeling re-empowered and those kinds of things. And and even working with somebody who specializes in that, if there if it's been a pretty significant problem and doing that work together hasn't been working too well. And there are people that specialize in that that are e- either are sex, you know, certified sex therapists or certified sexologists that have significant training. We do lo- hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of extra training hours to to work in that area in a sex positive way. That's wonderful advice, Faith. And um, in a minute or two, I'm going to ask for you to give folks your contact information. And I know we're having some static, so I apologize to our listeners. But I want to ask Joe for his input on that, because those were, again, nuggets of gold, Faith. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, I would concur that a lot of it is, you know, there's just so much cultural shame about talking about sex that a lot of times it's often the allistic partner that has trouble having a straightforward conversation about what they see as a very loaded topic. Mm-hmm. And, and so dialing it back to like, we have to talk about this. It's the only, it's not just going to get better by, you know, ignoring it or pretending it'll go away. And, you know, and I think it's about figuring out like what feels good and the other partner being willing to work with that and meet them there, you know? And so especially if it's something to um, my editor really had to push me to write on this prompt in the book because, you know, it's, it's like one of those things where, you know, it's like I hadn't given it enough prior thought to really get my head around it. But then Mm. once I did, I was like, it's pretty straightforward. It's like, you talk about it, you sort it out and then you're moving on, you know, and then if it's still not working, you, you repeat, you know, but people somehow, I mean, I guess it's like that thing where you've built it up through so much of life to think that it'll just be like a Disney movie, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. And it's not running through the, running through the field of flowers, you know, reaching out your hands for your partner. And then, yeah, but that's reality. And, and I think, a tough tough discussion to have i wish everybody could afford to go to somebody like you faith and have somebody with the expertise the years of experience and the patience and the knowledge to help them through this because i know um, a lot of couples are just dying from the lack of physical intimacy and i wish i had a magic wand to help them for those that can't afford you know, a, a therapist help with this faith. Do you have any um, books or maybe you could email me with books that you could recommend that maybe they could read together? Well, and that's, I mean, that's part of the reason that, you know, we published the book and workbook, the unfuck your intimacy. And we have there, they should be shipping from the printer. Any day is two oral sex books that we're both, um, we have Unfuck Your Fellatio and Unfuck Your Blowjobs that are both very inclusive. Um, They're queer friendly, trans friendly. And even though one says fellatio and, um, or one is blowjobs and one is cunnilingus, they're not even really specific to having particular body parts. Mm -hmm. So, um, So we're trying to get that information out there yeah, um, I like um, Urban Tantra really well. Um, uh, 
uh, I like there is the um, Wheel of Consent and there's tons of information on her website uh, besides the book that is Betty Martin's book. Wonderful. Um, um, Girl Sex 101 is amazing and is not specific on having a vulva as well. Um, uh, what else? Which, which those, other ones? Those are um, terrific. That's fantastic. Yeah. And, then, and then when your um, books are in, um, if you want to send me an email, I'll be happy to post on the Instagram, the Neurodiverse Love Instagram. I won't be able to say those exact words. I'll say, <laughs> I'll say Dr. Faith's books on yeah. physical intimacy. Oh, um, er- Erica Moen and Matthew Nolan's Ojoy Sex Toy and um, their series and web comics. And then they post it. They, they wrote one that was a teen-friendly guide. Um, Joe, what's the name of it? Um, Oh, uh, dr- uh, drawing sex. I think is what it's called. No, the draw. They did the the basics, but they wrote a teen a teen one recently that has uh, been oh, very yeah, well yeah. as well. Okay, I'll look yeah. for it and I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. So this is fantastic, great information. I want to end with one having both of you tell our listeners where they can find you. But before we do that, there's a question I want to ask you, Joe, as an adult man who is in a healthy relationship with somebody who does is not autistic what do you wish you could go back and tell 21 year old joe that might help you because you have this knowledge at 40 something so right. that maybe some of our listeners can benefit from the lessons you've learned. Is there something you would want to go back and tell 21-year-old Joe? Yeah. About relationships. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I, I think it really is just so simple as, like, you don't have to put up with being treated badly to be in a relationship. Mm. You know, I feel like because it's just a very slippery slope where suddenly you know because it's like someone isn't necessarily thinking that they're treating you badly they're just behaving the way that is the accepted dynamic in the relationship and that just slips as the ground moves out further and further from under you you know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and, you know so it's not you know even it's like you can be with a good person whatever that might mean or you can be with somebody that like really cares about you but that doesn't really matter they can still not treat you the way you need to be treated because you're not adequately communicating that and not setting a firm boundary i love it i love it that's great and faith is there one last bit of information that you want to share i know we could probably all talk for another four hours that you want to share with the neurodiverse couples or the individuals that are looking for relationships out there um i think what joe said is brilliant. And I think that he's really holding up an example of you can have a joyful and healthy life and you can create that for yourself and co-create it with a partner and that you don't have to settle to be happy. Amen. I love that. I love that. And I can't thank you both enough for agreeing to be on the Neurodiverse Love podcast and I would love for our listeners to be able to get in touch with both of you. So what is the best way for them to reach you, Joe? Uh, so our website is microcosm.pub. And then my personal website is joebeal.net. And it's B-I-E-L, like the German way. 
Awesome. And what about you, Faith? What's the best way for them to reach you? Um, I am my website and my um, online presence is the Intimacy Doctor, and that's um, DR, not spelled out doctor. And that's me on Insta and Twitter. And my um, sort of my website that shows when I'm doing events, or at least when I did events before the world shut down. Right. And my private practice page is faithgharper.com. I'm not taking clients right now. Hopefully that'll change at some point this spring. Okay. I've been pretty full and busy and I owe Joe Beal some books and <laughs> I know I'm still getting new clients until I get caught up. Right, Joe? Uh, mm-hmm. I owe yes, them one more manuscript cool. before I'm allowed to take new clients. Uh, okay. Okay. Um, but, um, but people are, I, I, I don't accept DMs because they they get a little rough sometimes. But I um I'm happy I'm happy if I can answer an email quickly, but I can't really respond to trauma narratives. <laughs> but mm-hmm. uh, you uh, can't do counseling through email. Can, I can do counseling you. through email, and I definitely <laughs> and well, and people you know they want to set appointments through DMs and stuff, and that's not a secure platform. Um, but um, e- email is a good way to get in contact with me, or even if it's just a quick question about a book or something, if I can answer them quickly. Um, I am in Texas. I can only do counseling in Texas. And since I'm not seeing people, I can, you know, refer you to an associate. I've, I've got an associate in my building who is, is wonderful and that I can refer you to and, and those kinds of things. Wonderful. Since Joe won't let me see any new clients until I finish my mind. <laughs> yeah, that's my role, yes. Yes, he's uh, so mean. You can also watch Faith and I uh, troll each other on social media all day long. Yes, we do. (laughs) Well, Joe, I want to congratulate you on your boundaries with Faith. Good for you. Good for Mm -hmm. you. Holding up those boundaries. I love it. I should say that's not true. He's not doing that. I'm just full. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, um, congratulations on your success with all your amazing books and publications out there. I ordered every single one that you had, Joe, on anything related to do do related to neurodiversity or neurodiverse relationships. And I just absolutely love them. So Thank you both for being on the Neurodiverse Love Podcast. It was an absolute pleasure for me. Thank you for having us. Welcome to the Neurodiverse Love Podcast. I'm Mona, and I was married for 30 years and in that relationship with my ex for 32. I've been divorced almost four years, and we have an amazing adult daughter who is 25 and doing fantastic. And today I have two wonderful guests that um, I have to tell you, when I posted about their most recent book, I had more likes and more connections with folks on Instagram than ever before. So I think everybody is really going to enjoy this conversation with Dr. Faith Harper and Joe Beal. So Joe and Faith, welcome to the Neurodiverse Love Podcast. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Oh, it's wonderful to have you. I've read uh, both the handbook and the workbook, so I'm sure you're going to be sharing some information about both of those and some of the lessons you've learned and some of your lived experiences. But I wanted to start with having you share with our audience a little bit about the work you are each doing now to kind of help and support and guide autistic individuals and neurodiverse couples and kind of what directed you both to do this work? 
So I don't know who wants to start. Joe or Faith, you guys get to choose. Sure. I'll tackle it. Um, so about six years ago, I wrote a book called Good Trouble that was, you know, essentially like my 20 years in publishing and how I came up in punk rock and how I had sort of learned how to be myself through a awkward series of mistakes and learning from them. And, you know, and I didn't really, and it was, I guess the big reveal is like, I'm autistic. Surprise. <laughs> you know, yeah. and I, you know, and this is the thing, Faith and I joke about this, that like when you get fan mail for a book that you wrote, it's like one half people wanting, you know, consulting and right. one half people that, you know, are telling you their story, you know, sure. Sure. and, uh, and so the fascinating thing, and I did not count on this. I had, you know, I'd, I had written, that was probably my sixth or seventh book. And, but this was the, you know, it was probably the most personal one. And, but it was fascinating because then people, autistic people, young autistic people, young enough to be my children, began <laughs> coming to me and asking for relationship advice. Okay. And, and then I began mentoring young people not from any intention or planning to do so. And that was about the same time that I met Faith. And um, so Faith, you know, is like a trained you know, counselor, whereas right. I am not, you know, I'm more just like these kids are like, oh, Joe is cool. Joe is like my parents' age, but can help more because we don't have like the baggage from, mm -hmm. you know, maybe some prior negative encounters. And so then I could go to Faith and say, okay, I have a kid that's going through this. Like, what does your profession say the best practices are? You know, because awesome. it gets serious, you know? Yeah. What a great partnership, Joe. I mean, what? how long ago was it that you and Faith met each other? What year was that? Oh, uh, was that 2016 or 2015? You're the... Um, we we have differing accounts on this matter. Well, it was um, it was on my honeymoon um, because I oh, have wow. the most patient honey uh, husband in the world. Um, so it was 2015 uh, when we formally met in person. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so so tell us a little bit. Thank you, Joe, for sharing that because I I will tell you that every time I have a guest on the podcast. It's always interesting to hear, number one, how they learned about being autistic, whether they were a child and they were diagnosed, whether it was a self kind of um, awareness or diagnosis or whether they had a formal uh, diagnosis as an adult. And everybody's journey is different, whether you're non-autistic or autistic, it doesn't matter. But it's so interesting that you found kind of your passion in publishing and now you've published several books with faith that I think are going to fly off the shelves um, in, in the next year or so, because as more people become aware of what you're sharing, which is phenomenal, you're going to have more people that want your not only advice and lived experience, but um, the how you've how you've transformed in your own life, you know, to understand what has helped you to become the thriving partner that you are in your relationship, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So, so Faith, can you tell us a little bit about what brought you to do the work that you're doing with autistic individuals and um, neurodiverse couples if you're working with both? Yeah. Um, so first of all, I mean, I'm, I'm just a therapist in private practice. Um, I'm, I'm in San Antonio, Texas, and I do a lot of work around trauma and um, intimacy, sexual intimacy, relational intimacy. And I have a neurodiverse child who is neurodiverse in all ways. They're um, autistic and ADHD. Uh Uh, And so I've always, that's, you know, always been part of my life. And I've always, and I've worked in community mental health and worked with, you know, individuals that were very high acuity. And I've always really enjoyed working with neurodiverse individuals. What was complicated for other clinicians um, was easier for me. I mean, maybe because it was, you know, partially, I was already grown up with it. And, but also I I found that if something made sense and was really practical, if we were kind of working together and trying to, you know, spitball solutions, if something made sense, somebody that's neurodiverse is just going to do it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, You know, like to me, it was easier. Like, I don't understand what the problem is, brother. Right. Right? This this is way easier. We we get, we get through stuff so much faster because we're not having to to go through the butthurt part of the program. Um, I I, like, I never saw what the problem was. Um, And like Joe said, you know, we, we would kind of talk about things and it was kind of this running joke. I'm like, we just need to come up with like, like, like life coaching program for working with neurodiversity or something because, um, you know, he would, it was really like that. He was saying, this person's having this issue. Would it make sense to do that? And I would say, oh, no, 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 don't say it like this, but I see what you're trying to get at. Maybe this. Or I could come back through and say, oh, well, actually, the reason, you know, when people are talking about that and they're throwing up their hands, like, oh, my goodness, every, you know, everyone's autistic now and we're overdiagnosing. And I would say, no, well, the, the reason that the numbers went from 188 to 168 is because our diagnostic criteria got better. My yes. kid was one of those kiddos that fell through the cracks and they were sub threshold to a diagnosis with the DSM-4, but they qualified under DSM-5. And he was like, oh. Crap, I didn't know that. That's really cool information. So I could throw in that kind of stuff being a counselor educator and, and knowing the research. And and so it was a really good partnership of people who, you know, as as a borough norm and and somebody who had the lived experience with neurodiversity, but in many other ways thought really the same, of, you know, and were passionate about the topic, we worked really well together in that regard. Oh, and it shows Faith and Joe. I mean, when I read the Autism Relationships Handbook and your subtitle is How to Thrive in Friendships, Dating, and Love, I was like, I have to have these two folks on the podcast and we have to get this book in the hands of more individuals and couples because it is gold. It is absolutely gold. So I want you both to know that the handbook and the workbook, I loved them both. And I think that for so long, we've made things a lot more difficult than they have to be. Mm-hmm. And I, I think some, it literally can be very black and white. But not having an autistic brain, I complicate everything. I do. I make do. everything yes. super emotional. <laughs> and I think I'm ADHD. I do. I've never been diagnosed, but I do. So everything is so much more emotional and complicated than it has to be. 
So I want you all to think about and maybe answer this for me. After living, you know, your life, Joe, and seeing the challenges you experienced, plus how you're thriving in life and in your relationship, what do you both think are the greatest strengths of being in a neurodiverse relationship? So, I mean, it's like you said, actually, I think for me, my strength is always that, yeah, I can strip out any level of like emotional processing where I can always bring it right back to the like, well, what is the goal? Like, why are we not moving towards that goal? Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, and I think, and this is maybe, you know, I may be getting ahead of myself here, but, you know, I've been in like a, what both of us would describe as a healthy relationship for, you know, about 15 years. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, the first time where, you know, I haven't been pathologized because there's trust in the relationship. So when something goes awry, I can go to my partner and say, what just happened and get a little bit of a backstory of like, oh, well, this person is probably perceiving this because this is the convention in this instance. And so it's like, I have an interpreter and I can provide the service of, you know, being both like straightforward and just sort of like, I'm very good at redirecting and I'm very good at sort of, you know, the more logical aspects of that, which is maybe a little stereotypical, but whatever. But that's awesome. And I love what you said, Joe, that you have an interpreter. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like when I'm, doing coaching with neurodiverse couples, I become the interpreter. Yes. I become the translator, right, Faith? Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> and 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 it's and and the other thing I love that you said, Joe, was in your healthy relationship of 15 years, you don't feel like you're pathologized. I think as soon as I found out that my ex was on the spectrum and we started talking about it, I was constantly looking through that lens. And that wasn't healthy for either one of us. You know, um, so so thank you so much for sharing that, because I think those two things are going to be really, really helpful f- to our listeners. What about you, Faith? What do you what do you think are the greatest strengths that you've seen in neurodiverse relationships? Um, I, I think Joe explained it beautifully, and he does have an incredibly strong relationship. And I've seen that in action because not only are they partners in life, they're partners in the business mm-hmm. and really. Um, He's with somebody who lets him be strong in the ways that he's strong. And I also say, you know, and he's saying, I can pull the emotion out and make decisions. But Joe is also hugely empathic. And I think that it's really important to say that people that are neurodiverse are not unemotional. In fact, they are deeply emotional. They express it differently, right? And so he's hugely empathic and takes care of people in really beautiful ways, but is able to make decisions without the butt hurt, right? And that is, is such an incredible thing. And, you know, and his partner is able to help do the interpretation thing. And just like we have to do therapeutically with clients, you know, and sometimes we have to do that in when there's a, like there's a confusion when we're working with couples that are of different genders, when we're having to explain, okay, like, 
like this is just like a guy thing that he's doing right now right. or whatever it's it's the same thing and then having being able to explain like okay your partner is doing this because they're neurodiverse and this is what they're coming like they're not messing with you they see the world differently and as you spend especially like in a newer relationship and as you spend more time together you're going to realize what a strength that is Right. I mean, a good partnership is always a balance of each other's strengths. My husband is not neurodiverse, but he's weird and interesting and different in these ways that really complement me and vice versa. And every relationship is a balance of these strengths, every healthy relationship. Right. So we're always looking for that. And in, in relationships where one partner is neurodiverse, I'm help, helping them recognize that this is a strength and you have to realize that they're not messing with you. They're seeing the world in this new and beautiful way and the way that they see the world there's going to be problems that we need how they see the world to solve that we just are not going to be able to because we're going in with our emotional ability you know and we, we need i mean and Joe knows me so well. Like, it's a running joke. He's like, hey, I know you have a copy of this zine and you have it in a box labeled this in your office. <laughs> Which I had wow. never been to yet. Which you have not yet been to my house. <laughs> but I could mathematically, like, parse that out. Yes. That this is how Faith thinks and sorts information. And he's right. <laughs> and I love that. Yeah. And, like, that's amazing. Like, that's freaking awesome, you know? It is. Um, it- yeah it's a humongous strength and faith you know and joe i have to say you know i've looked back at my 32 year relationship with my ex through a neurodiverse lens and when i look at the strengths there were so many and they had a lot to do with what you're talking about i am not a logical rational person especially when it has something to do with a person that i care about Mm -hmm. and my ex could literally take apart you know peel back the onion in a very logical way and get me to a place where i can make a decision without super overloading myself with emotion and there were so many other things that were strengths but i think when people get into a relationship early on and they know that they're a neurodiverse couple, it definitely can look very different because they're both working to understand each other as they start the relationship. But, you know, I also work with a lot of folks who are diagnosed, whether it's self or formal, after 10 or 20 years of marriage. In my case, it was 29 years of marriage. And so you have all this misunderstanding. You have all these hurts. You have all this pain. What, like, do you think might be advice or information that you would want to share regarding the importance, number one, of getting the diagnosis? And then how do you kind of work through what had happened in the past before you knew that you were a neurodiverse couple. Thoughts on that? Because it's something a lot of people are struggling with that I work with. Yeah, I... Sure. Oh, Joe, you start. Uh, I mean, I see this a lot with younger people that I work with when I try to bring them to group or when I try to get them to, you know, like embrace or interface with that part of themselves. And they're almost always having the feeling of like, I can't do that in good conscience until I'm formally diagnosed. And, you know, like in community, that diagnosis is pretty controversial just because of access. And, you know, because like people our age, 
we're in our 40s and climbing are you know <laughs> just not like we didn't have access to it as children because it wasn't something that existed yet you right. know right and so but it's you know so it's like you work with what you know or i'm sorry one of our salespeople actually told me the the best most applicable advice where people want to know the information that you have at the time that you have it to the best of your knowledge you know mm -hmm. and and i feel like that applies to literally any situation in i agree life. joe i agree i agree and, and so it's like you need to be able at least to be explained back to like well this is what i knew when i told you that or you know, I have a, a friend of mine who um, got divorced because uh, the spouse felt like the diagnosis was a betrayal because it fundamentally changed who, you know, they had married, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And so it's like in cases like that, you know, it's sticky and difficult, but I feel like it ultimately like led this person to be who they were and now in a loving relationship, you know. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, there's like something fundamentally broken when your spouse leaves you because you get diagnosed, not because of like anything you did or right. said or who you are. You know, it's like that in almost every case I can think of, it's like a deeply personal decision that has to come from the situation of your life, you know, rather than from any sort of like prescribed overarching you know, dictum. Yeah, I so agree with you, Joe. And and I, I think a lot of folks who've been married for a long time, it takes a lot to get to the other side where you can trust, number one, yourself in the relationship if you've been hurt um, or if you've both hurt each other and there's been so much misunderstanding. And so if you're not comfortable, you know, in your own in your own body, in your own mind, you know, and you have to do whatever you have to do to heal and become the best version of yourself. I think it's hard for some folks to watch that and be patient on, on both sides, you know? So Faith, what, what do you think? I, I really appreciate that, Joe, because that's really, really important for our listeners to hear. What about you, Faith? Yeah, I mean, what, one thing I do when, when I suspect that's what's going on is... I mean, I love it when a client comes in and says, so I, I think that I might be autistic because I'm usually, oh, good. I don't have to tell you <laughs> because sometimes somebody comes in and it's pretty, pretty clear when you're, you're, you know, you're used to spotting that when you grew up with a kiddo in your house that was sure. <laughs> or whatever. Sure. Um, but when you you start to, I, I start with the term neurodiverse because I think it's frank, frankly more um, accurate mm -hmm. and definitely less stigmatizing. You know, we don't have as much crap around it. Yeah, um, I which agree. Is helpful. And um, I try a lot of time. I've had a lot of spouses go, well, okay, this makes a lot of sense mm -hmm. um, more than anything else of like, oh, so you weren't messing with me. Now mm -hmm. we know what to work with. Now we have different tools. 
Now we have, I mean, there's, I mean, not like, oh, everything's magically better now. Um, but, you know, one of my roles in working with couples, so one of my postdocs is sexology. So we get real practical and real oh. granular doing that kind of work. So I, all of my couples work um, starts with that. And one of my roles is we have to presume best intent in all of our interactions here. And when my clients are like, well, I don't presume best intent of my partner. I'm like, well, then um, I think you should probably file for divorce. And that would be cheaper in couples therapy if you think that your partner is messing with you. Um, I, I think that we that really- is- so good faith i don't want to interrupt but let's get back to that in a minute that is so good <laughs> right Go ahead. like i mean if, if we can't presume best intent and presume that somebody's really trying and they may say something not great and you're like ow that really hurt can we like try that again you know i mean that doesn't mean that they're not going to say and do things that are hurtful but let's presume that we're trying and then we can we can adjust and reinterpret and, and all these other things. Joe, you know, has a very loving partner of 15 years and he may stick his foot in it and she can go, um, no, let's try that again. But that's not this thing saying this of going like, oh, you're just being mean on purpose, right? right. Those are different right. things. Um, so let's presume best intent and let's work from there. And let's go, if your brain works a little differently and you're coming from this place and seeing it from this way, that's going to lend a lot of to explanation here. If you're tired and you're overwhelmed and you're this and you're that, and how is that any different from the fact that I get migraines and get cranky? Another thing that Joe can tell just from a text if I'm texting him about something, right? You know, I mean, yeah. we all have these moments and when you understand what's going on with somebody, that can be really helpful information. And so I just see these like, this is another piece of information about the person that you love that, you know, so you can say, okay, so when you said that, let's, let's not say it that way. I understand you were just giving me factual information of, does this stress make me look fat? No, your fat makes you look fat. Mm, <laughs> That's, yeah. Not the answer I was looking for. Let's right. work on that. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. Yeah. Of saying, you know what? That's not a really good cut on you. I think you would look better in something with an ampere waist. Right, right, <laughs> Let right. me help you with that. Yeah. Right, right, right. <laughs> but that wasn't poorly intended. Right, right. Yeah. I didn't mean to make you cry and not want to go out with me for the right. next week. Right. Yeah. So, so let's get, I, I love that. And I think, again, I don't have a time machine. I wish I could go back and reduce so many of the things I screwed up royally in my marriage. Um, but now looking through every relationship I've had since my marriage, I am a very different partner because I'm looking through that neurodiversity lens. Even if I don't know if the person is neurodiverse, I'm looking at them through a different kind of lens than I did before. So presuming best intent with your partner, I think is critical for our listeners to hear. Absolutely critical. And if you can't do that, I agree with you, Faith. I wonder if this is the right relationship for you, or right. maybe this is an opportunity for you to ask yourself that question. I think the other thing that folks need to think about is we're going to be different in every relationship we have. And the question is, do we understand ourselves and our differences? So let's talk a little bit about some of the biggest social and emotional differences that maybe Joe, you and your partner share, and maybe that you've seen faith in your practice. 
what do you see as the biggest social and emotional differences, Joe, with you and your partner or with others that you've met? Sure. So, I mean, and it's interesting because, I mean, this is the greatest knock on wood statement I'll probably say all day, but we haven't really, my partner and I haven't really had a substantial argument in more than five years. That's terrific. Congratulations. (laughs) I mean, and to a degree, and, you know, in every preceding relationship of my life was just nonstop arguments, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and I think it was like, that was the point where I really just got it through that I was like, these are the ways that I am treated different than you are socially. Mm-hmm. These are aspects uh, and, you know, and then that was sort of the, the point where we got through that wall of seeing that, oh, and then, you know, and then it like had the ability to go back and say, oh, I see it now, you know, mm. and that, and I think, you know, it's the same kind of thing where, having that patience and having the, you know, it's like, I, you know, I, I see it as like a roadmap, you know, is how I explain it to people, you know, and I, I don't just work with autistic people. I also, also uh, excuse me, I also work with autistic people's partners mm-hmm. and, and parents, but parents are less interesting because, you know, they, they're uh, all kinds of reasons, but <laughs> the, the, uh, you know, so a lot of it is they're coming back and they're saying like, you know, maybe like you would do either of you in therapy. They say like, my partner is doing this. What does it mean? And I'm, and you know, and it's almost always the partner is saying like exactly what they want, exactly what they mean. And the, the holistic partner mm-hmm. is coming back and assuming there's a coded message hidden right, in there somewhere right, right. You know, rather than like when you say that you want tacos for dinner you mean that you're deeply unhappy with our relationship <laughs> <laughs> i love that joe and our listeners really need to hear that yeah. stop overthinking the black and white comments that come out of your partner's mouth they're telling you what they want right yeah yeah. And, often, and often it's like you know it's different if it's like a per you know it's easy to be triggered it's easy to internalize messaging to like some prior experience to some prior relationship that's unresolved but that's almost never what's actually going on in the present you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and faith wrote a whole book about this called unfuck your brain that is you know her best-selling book by a wide wide measure it you know she outsold stephen king on audible you know last year when apparently wow. needed to hear what she had to say <laughs> but the 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 wild part is that you know it really comes back to separating you know your amygdala reaction and connecting it to your thinking brain of you know saying like this is how i was activated but this is what's actually going on and everything is actually fine Thank you.